just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into to Bitcoin and, and mining in the first place. Yeah. So, uh, hi, everyone. I'm Edward. I head up uh, BD here at Brains and Slushful. Um, in terms of how I got started, uh, I first heard about it a long time ago, just back in university, but I never really looked into it just through conversations with friends. And then when I actually started getting into it was right before I moved to China. I was in grad school over in California. I started doing some research into it, but I didn't really like go heavy in on it, just experimented with, you know, really small purchases. And then by the time I was, uh, I had moved to Shanghai, I had really gotten the thick of it, um, going to local meetups uh, and the people that attend these meetups at the local bars in Shanghai and Shuhui uh, or Jing'an were uh, people that were into altcoins, people that were into Bitcoin, uh, people that were developing on Ethereum, uh, some miners that were hobbyists for the most part. Uh, sometimes people would bring their machines, their GPU rigs or their uh, ASICs to show them off and get people a, give people a first-hand look at them. And uh, from there... I was kind of hooked and I built my network in there. And I, when it was presented to me, looked at the opportunity to enter the space professionally and make it my job. Um, and then that's awesome. between Shanghai and Beijing for a little bit. And now I'm in Prague. What a, what a way, man. That's um, it's kind of crazy. Everybody has their, their own stories. And, you know, for me, I just kind of realized that if, if one thing in my life didn't happen um, exactly how it did, I, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And, uh, you know, it was only a few years ago that I, I personally didn't even know anything about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And, uh, you know, here, here we are at, at the top of our game, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, Hopefully not the top. Hopefully we have, uh, yeah. Oh, this is still the beginning. Right? To do. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, that's great to hear how, how you got into Bitcoin. Um, and that, that's crazy that, that you've been all over the, the world like that. Um, so I, I suppose you do have some interesting stories just kind of working for pools or other other projects uh, around there or, or in China. Uh, you said, I think, offline, uh, you were doing something before 2019. What what was all that about? Yeah, so um, before I was at Brains and Slush Pool, I was over at F2 Pool in uh beijing um that's see i'm trying to think of interesting stories from there um a lot of it was just kind of in retrospect just looking at the drastic differences in how people approach bitcoin mining in china versus other regions that i'm now more exposed to being over at uh, brains and slush pool um and i guess the obvious thing that just sticks out is the scale at which it's done um, you know, people get really excited for these announcements from miners in Canada or United States or maybe uh, Scandinavia about, oh, we're going to reach one exahash or two exahash by the end of uh, 2021 or maybe Q2 2021. But, you know, there have been miners that have already been at that for quite some time. Um, and then especially when you look at, there, there are some miners I've encountered in China that have operations in Xinjiang, Sichuan, Inner Mongolia, all over, as well as investments in the Middle East and CIS region. And, you know, they have upwards of five exahash. Um, those are, of course, like the largest examples, but it still just highlights uh, how long they've been doing it and 
their access to supply chains and just at what a different scale they're operating on over there. Right. Um, whereas over, you know, in North America, you see a lot more vertical integration into the mining stack. Uh, you'll have people that own the, the, the power, the data center, uh, maybe they're working on, they've created their own minor monitoring system. Right. Uh, they have their own firmware, um, you know, maybe an energy grid program or something like that. Whereas uh, things are still much more compartmentalized over in China. And this is because, well, I imagine because they haven't really had a need to vertically integrate to become competitive yet. Um, right. You know, you right. have one person own the data center with the electricity and you'll have large miners that just own the machines that host them there but they can get incredibly low rates for the wet season being like three cents per kilowatt hour all in. Um, and then, you know, it's all just much more spread out into different entities and they, they're much more comfortable. It seems like uh, focusing on that one thing as opposed to spreading out and vertically integrating, but we're starting to see that change a little bit now. Right. Yeah. That, that vertical inter integration is, is interesting. Um, and you know, you, you did mention the, the wet season as well. Um, uh, yeah, the, the fact that, okay, so the miners are made in China, you know, that's where they come from. They get the, the first pick at, at the latest and greatest new miners. Uh, sometimes they have the inside scoop. So, you know, they, they're hashing maybe even a couple months before other people are hashing on on the, the newest and, and greatest mining equipment, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, like, like you're saying, the, the competition hasn't necessarily uh, spawned innovation um as far as that, that vertical integration goes um but yeah let, let's just back up a little bit and and just uh talk about the, the wet season um because that, that's obviously an interesting topic every year it happens where uh you know it starts getting out of that wet season into the into the dry season and and what what kind of impact does that have on on the the bitcoin ecosystem would you say yeah, so, um, and we, we saw it in uh, May of this year when the wet season really starts uh, going. A lot of the contracts start and people turn on their new machines. Um, and then, uh, you know, a lot of the supply chain in China revolves around this wet season. Like hardware manufacturers try to release machines um, kind of lined up with it. Uh, people get their, their data centers ready, um, selling contracts in advance to make them start at that time period. And um, so what we saw during halving this this year, uh, we saw hash rate kind of, you know, just not really dip too much after having, there was like a small drop directly after, and then it just started climbing right back up again. Um, and this is partially because of the cheap, plentiful electricity that was available uh, during and after having. And then, hmm. you know, you see it scale up all throughout the, the wet or rainy season, however you want to refer to it. And um, basically, uh, the whole point is to ROI on your machines quickly with these cheap electricity rates. And then they generally end in October. I think the date is October 25th when most of them end, which just happened recently. And as we saw, a uh, hash rate dropped from a height of somewhere around like 148 exahash, I think it was. And then it dropped, uh, if I remember quite correctly, like 15 to 20% or something like that. Um, almost immediately. And then so from when you look at the top pools uh, in terms of like the amount of hash rate flowing to them, you look at, uh, you know, pool in F2 pool, uh, BTC.com, Ant pool, a couple of the exchange pools, and you look at their hash rate, it dropped just sharply um, after the contracts ended. And then you'll start to see them 
climb up a little bit more as the machines move from Sichuan to areas like Xinjiang or Inner Mongolia. And this can take anywhere from seven to 14 days. So I think it's already starting to recover in some pools now, but uh, I think we'll see the hash rate rise even more in the next week. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And, and you know, for people that don't know, uh, yeah, the, the wet season corresponds with uh, hydro uh, electricity. So they, they have these mining operations set up uh, near dams that, that where they can get this really cheap power. Uh, and then they, like you said, they, they move their miners to other data centers, to other mining facilities um, for the rest of the year where it's a little bit more expensive. So that there is that little bit of downtime that, that causes the hash rate to kind of fluctuate, right? Yeah, exactly. And then I think the most significant part about this rainy season ending, um, oh, and just by the way, that uh, the, all those cheap electricity contracts, the hydropower is plentiful in Sichuan. So there's a huge concentration of hash rate in the Sichuan province. Um, but as this rainy season ends, uh, because difficulty, um, despite it, it's probably going to drop pretty soon. I think the last time I looked at the difficulty estimator, it was around 12 to 15%. But um, uh, this is the first rainy season that once it ends, a lot of the old gen machines won't be as profitable to run anymore in China. So a lot of people will have the three, three cents per kilowatt hour to 3.3 cent per kilowatt hour electricity contracts. So they'll have to shut off um, S9s and things like that. And then, you know, there could be areas that could still run the, you know, machines like S9s profitably with, um, with custom firmware and things like that. But that's uh, China's a pretty untapped market in regards to that, because in my experience anyways, much of them don't have uh, any expertise or past experiences messing with third-party firmware. They pretty much stick to Bitmain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that that is a, a very interesting uh, time that we're in right now, because like you were saying, you know, there was the happening that occurred, wet season ending, um, New machines like uh, S19 are on back order for many months. Um, mm. And those S9, you know, that, that workhorse that has been around for so long, um, it, it now, yeah, it, a lot of people have sold those already. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, you see that yearly cycle, but then there's always these unique things that happen every year um, outside of that that kind of mess mess with it. Um, yeah. but yeah, so that, that's, it's crazy. What, what, what an industry to be in, huh? Yeah. And what's, what's interesting about the S9 too is, um, despite, you know, many of them shutting off in China, they simply move to an area with uh, cheaper electricity. And we see a lot of them actually going to parts of North America and South America, um, some parts of CIS and Middle East as well. But I'm seeing, uh, with, you know, stuff being accepted and formally legalized by various governments say in like Iran or Venezuela, there's a large demand for them. So there's a lot of people kind of begrudgingly selling their used S9s down to Venezuela. Yeah. Um, I say begrudgingly because the idea is that as older generation machines become unprofitable, they're turned off, which kind of gives a miners a break in terms of increases in difficulty because with new gen machines, at least the old ones will turn off. Turns right. out this isn't the case. They just turn off temporarily until they find a new home. So um, you know, and then of course, can't forget the the energy programs in the United States that you know enjoy electricity rates as low as you know one to two cents for turning off their power at uh, peak hours. Yeah, um, they're buying up S nines like crazy, 
uh, by the tens of thousands. And yeah. because the ROI on that, when you look at how cheap the electricity is, you know, it's anywhere, it could be like 40 days. And after 40 days, it's just pure profit on those S9s. Yeah, it's crazy, you know, because right now you can get an S9 for, I don't know, anywhere between $20 to $40, depending if, if it has a, a bit main PSU or, you know, what country it's in or, or whatever, um, or how savvy you are at, at buying. Uh, but that, that really does tie into this whole, you know, hash rate distribution um, and, and the, the, what's it called, the, the decentralization of, of the hash rate um, around the world. And yeah, when you said they're they're begrudgingly selling off their their old equipment, um, you know, there there is definitely a difference between you know capitulation and and uh, repurposing. You know, so there's all these, all these different reasons why people uh, stop mining or uh, upgrade their miners or can't upgrade their miners. You know, because of profit profitability or or if they actually have the capital to do it or not. But um, but yeah, so I mean, what are you seeing as far as hatch rate distribution and, and profitability of mining these days? Well, kind of touching on the, the new machines and profitability, um, I, I personally wouldn't go in on the new machines when you look at the M30S++ or however many pluses it is, and <laughs> uh, the like S19s and the S19 Pros, just because, um, you know, the, the recent increase in BTC price has helped uh, somewhat, but the ROI periods on those things are absolutely insane, like 500 plus days, and then difficulty will just increase over that time. So yeah, yeah, not, not 500 days, but... 500 days, uh, not even including the potential of, of the difficulty increasing, right? Yeah, exactly. So like, theoretically, it's just like, you're never going to ROI on these things, unless yeah. you have some uh, really sweet electricity uh, yeah. agreements, but or, um, or, or if Bitcoin moons or something, right? Exactly. That, that's, so that's I... what everyone wants. <laughs> I would love that personally, <laughs> but um, yeah. So like I'm hearing a lot of miners ask or like seeking out if a machine that's kind of more effective in terms of uh, purchasing it in uh, dollars per terahash um, because they do have access to some of these cheaper electricity rates and they just are more interested in a quicker ROI. Um, and then that includes even buying used machines from the previous generation in order to do this uh, with S9s kind of not being profitable in many regions. A lot of people are looking towards the T17s or like the M20Ss becoming the new workhorse. I'm, I have a feeling it probably it's probably going to be the M20Ss just because uh, the 17 series, in my experience, has had a whole hell of a lot of problems. Right. Um, I've heard many miners say that they're swearing off Bitmain and never ordering again because you know they ordered several thousand machines and experienced a 50% failure rate. Yeah. Um, and then of course the customer support responses to that hasn't always been ideal. So. Um, that's, that's kind of my opinion on profitability and, uh, yeah. and new machines. I would kind of me personally, if I had access to good electricity rates, I would go in on a bunch of used, you know, uh, M 20 S's or something like that, or maybe some 17 series that were in good working condition, didn't have heat sinks falling off and things like that. <laughs> um, and then just try to, you know, get as much money out of those as possible. And, you know, you don't have this ridiculous upfront CapEx for that. Right. Um, in terms of hash rate distribution, <clears throat> uh, right now it's still by far concentrated in China. Um, when you look at a lot of these public reports coming out at hash rate distribution, I feel like the metrics are kind of flawed because it simply looks at hash rate as bounded by uh, state boundaries, borders. Hmm. 
So they're saying, oh, there's this much hash rate in China, there's this much hash rate in the United States, but it doesn't look at who owns that hash rate or basically who owns the machines that generate those hash rate, Right. that hash rate, because most of the people, um, my contacts in China that are like very large miners, uh, they invest all over the world in mining um, and a huge, you know, a huge part of the infrastructure built up in Iran and the CIS region um, came from Chinese investors. We're talking like Kazakhstan, Russia, um, Iran. So, and they own, you know, sometimes up to half of these facilities in terms of the initial investment. Wow. Um, so I don't think it's a really accurate metric. I think if you take that into consideration, you know, probably closer to like 85% or upwards. Right. And then you have to look at where the hash rate is distributed on a pool level. I think right now it's like uh, 97% or something like that is in pools based in China, Beijing, Shenzhen, areas like that. Um, and, you know, the hash rate, if the terminus point is at a pool in China, then, you know, and that pool controls the hash rate, then uh, I'd say it's, you could make a really good argument that in fact, 97% of the hash rate is in China. Um, exactly. But, yeah, yeah. So it's so like but, you're saying, it's not just uh, geography and, and uh, it, it's some of the, the um, software and, and processes behind it. Uh, like like the pool that that you belong to, um, and and where that's developed or who owns that, right? Yeah, um, and I guess that would be like an easy <laughs> segue into shilling stratum v two with job negotiation. <laughs> but I'll uh, I'll just do a quick ten second thing of that so we can move on. But basically, you know, job negotiation allowing miners to select their own block template. So should the pool reject their their block template, um, they can choose to mine with a different pool. Um, and this gives more power uh, to the miners themselves as opposed to the miner mining pools. Mm -hmm. uh, so something to consider, there's grants right now through Square Crypto for any developers interested in helping us uh, push out that very last important feature for it. And yeah, that's all I'll say on that. Very interesting. Um, and that, that has to do with Rust, right? The, the Rust language? Uh, so most of the products we make are coded in Rust or Python, um, but Rust is a huge foundation for it. Yes. Yeah. T I mean, t tell me a little bit more about that, that whole initiative. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting and I've heard about it before, but you know, just for, for the audience to, to understand what's, what's going on and you know, why, wh why is it important? Yeah, so I would say I would probably break it up into three categories for Stratum V2. Um, maybe a fourth one being open source. Uh, it is open source as Stratum V1 was, and that's the mining protocol that all the other mining pools now use that we invented um, back in 2010. And V2, you can kind of see as an upgrade to V1. It improves things on a security level, on an efficiency level, and uh, helps the network, the mining network, become more decentralized. Um, in terms of security, it prevents things like middleman attacks that can hijack your hash rate. Um, this is one of the most important security features we've added to our firmware that we uh, released and prevents people from hijacking your um, your hash rate, as has been the case in, in certain areas of CIS in China that I can remember. Um, efficiency, it's data load transfers are much more efficient than V1, so you can we're talking about like a 40 or 50% reduction in data load transfers. And this can be important for people 
um, especially in the oil and gas industry that are mining in really remote areas, relying on satellite internet or LTE SIM networks. And their second largest expense is uh, data costs. Mm -hmm. So this really reduces costs for them on that. And then um, in terms of decentralization, kind of the job negotiation feature, which I mentioned before, which allows miners to submit their own block templates to the pool. Now, I mean, that's, that's a lot of benefits for sure. And I know you're, you know, you're in charge of business development, but to, to go back to that whole man in the middle attack, can you kind of explain that from a more of a technical standpoint and, and how's that, how that's possible to, to do and, and what that vulnerability is all about? Yeah, Jeez. last time I spoke about this was probably November of last year, so about a year ago. But um, from what I remember, uh, there was some miners that approached us that uh, people were making these routers and hooking them up in facilities, and this would redirect hash rate to accounts that they controlled. Um, I'm not exactly sure how they went about this, but this pretty much uh, it closes attack vectors, which allow people to steal hash rate from the miners. Hmm. How it exactly does that, I, I'd have to review notes. And even then, I don't know if I'd be super comfortable talking about the technical details just because that isn't my expertise and I'd be at the risk of making a fool of myself. Understood. But, uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah I'd, I'd be happy to speak about it more with you later after the podcast and once I send you over some articles. Sure, yeah. Well, let's just uh, take a little break here. I, I want to talk about our sponsor, Mining Disrupt. Um, you guys saw that intro video uh, earlier. And as you can see, it's um, taking place in 259 days. That seems so far away, but, uh, you know, in, in the crypto world. But it's it's coming. And, uh, you know, despite coronavirus, I, I think hopefully things are going to be a lot better by then. Um, but anyway, I, I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about this. Um, if there are anybody out there that wants to get exposure for their Bitcoin or mining crypto related uh, company, let me know. You can contact me at uh, scott at cryptomining.tools and we can set you up as a, as a sponsor. Um, so anyway, check out their website, miningdisrupt.com and I'll just show you some of the sponsors that have already been landed so far. You got uh, Maddox uh, Transformers, um, Advania Data Centers. There, there's me right here. I, I got a two separate booths and put them together right by the entrance. Um, BitPro, Nova Block, uh, Cryptex, uh, Epic Blockchain. They just came out with the uh, SC200 miner. And then there's uh, some of these other booths that are still available and, and on hold. You know, I, I think uh, Michael is trying to hold these off for some of these uh, major manufacturers of, of mining equipment or, you know, like a, a really major sponsor. Um, but if that's you, if you're one of those major sponsors or even a minor sponsor, um, talk to me. I'd, I'd love to, to get you some exposure at this conference taking place soon. Um, so anyway, let's uh, get back to you, Edward. And, you know, we have a few more things to discuss before we bring this podcast episode to an end. And uh, earlier offline, you were talking about um, an article that you guys um, just released. Let me see if I can bring it up here on the screen. Data security for, for Bitcoin miners. Um, yeah. Well, do you, oh, this what is do a recent know? one, actually. Yeah. What, what do you know about this one? 
Not much, to be honest. This is okay. handled by the marketing department. Ah, okay. Um, so yeah, and I, it's just pretty cool that you guys are uh, putting out these kinds of, of articles. And uh, I came across this. I, I don't know where it actually is available online, um, but this was a a Google Doc. But it's basically talking about you know um, protecting your your network with HTTP versus HTTPS. Um, and different things like that, different attack vectors. So some of those things uh, that, that you were talking about earlier, but a, a little bit in more technical detail on, on how that works, you know, being submitted to the pool from the miner. Um, but yeah, I, I'd be interested in, in figuring out um, where this article is actually posted and, and I, I could actually help you help you share it, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think Christian, uh is the one that shared that with you. We released it recently. Um, I think it had a lot of traction in Spanish speaking countries because there was an outlet over there that translated it for us, but oh, cool. you'd be the best one to speak to about that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, let's see, something about a, a new pool in Canada. Oh yeah. So um, uh, DMG, they, I believe before this venture were mainly focused on managing data centers for their clients, mm -hmm. um, mostly focused in Canada, uh, BC, if I remember correctly. And now their their big new project is a KYC uh, pool, which, you know, um, basically it's a pool where all people that participate in the mining uh, pool are KYC'd um, and it's fully compliant with all AML KYC laws in the region. And I think they also censor OFAC addresses to prevent uh, any miners from being exposed to um, mining transactions or working on a, a block that could get them in trouble. Uh, how this plays out in reality is going to be interesting. Because on one side, there is this demand for a product like this, especially from some of the larger, more public companies right. that are operating, especially in North America, that want to remain compliant and not get busted by whichever regulatory body decides they want to arbitrarily make an example of someone. Um, but then on the, the other side, uh, it seems to destroy a lot of the incentives for miners mining on the network. And I don't even know how it's actually viable in the long term. Just because, you know, to not work on blocks that have transactions from areas under uh, intense scrutiny and, you know, just flat out embargoes like, uh, you know, say North Korea or Iran or something, you literally wouldn't be able to mine any block because I have a feeling that there's at least one transaction from, you know, the list of places or addresses that would, you know, in every single block that's mined pretty much. So I'm not sure how a pool like that can be profitable for miners. Hmm. And all I'll say is that I guess this kind of connects back to Stratum V2 and why a pool like DMG would be incentivized to adopt it, especially when the job negotiation feature is out, is because um, with job negotiation and the miners selecting their own block template, they could basically prove to regulators that, you know, they had this list of OFAC addresses that they never included in their block template and thus never worked on. And if the 
pool itself is supported, uh, is has implemented V2 and supports this feature, then uh, the miner themselves that are submitting this block template that maybe don't have these transactions from these specific regions or addresses, um, it may be less profitable, but they take on that risk. So everyone right. else in the pool would remain just as profitable as they would have been. And any decrease in profitability is taken on by the miner that submitted the block template. Um, so in that sense, you know, the incentives could remain intact. Everyone would still enjoy the profits they desired with the exception of some of these larger public companies that maybe are willing to uh, not take as much profits in transaction fees in order to um, uh, remain compliant with some of these uh, KYC AML laws. And, you know, in the short term, I could see that working because transaction fees are what about, you know, 10 to 12% of the, the mining rewards now. However, in the future, after uh, more halvings, I don't see this as being mm. really viable when more and more of the rewards are going to come from transaction fees. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So d definitely in the short run, you know, there's something to be said about it. Um, you know, while different governmental bodies are trying to come up with regulations uh, that, you know, they want to try to, these companies want to reduce their risk and, and exposure. So they're putting some of these things in place, but it, that definitely makes sense in the future when, when less of the reward comes from, from that um, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Right. Um, mm. But yeah. And I think that kind of ties back in, you know, before we uh, end the podcast to, to this whole vertical inter integration, you know, of pools and financial services, firmware, you know, you see, like you were saying earlier in China, you don't really see as much of that because they, they haven't really needed to, but in places like problem North America, a... uh, yeah. it seems to be a, like a race to zero, right? Like zero, zero fee. Um, can you just kind of speak to this whole vertical integration of, of pools and financial services and firmware and stuff like that? Yeah. So um, basically because of uh, just competition in the mining pool space, much of the fees have been driven to zero or close to zero. Um, so uh, for example, uh, you know, a very, very large miner in China operating on a FPPS pool can negotiate probably down to below half a percent in fees. And then when the pool has to take on that much risk, they have to seek other, by like the variability, I mean, they have to seek on other avenues uh, of revenue um, so that they can continue to provide that service for miners as well as remain profitable. So this has really driven pools to uh, diversify in order to stay alive um, because it, you know, the running a pool just itself isn't really a profitable business, especially with uh, some of the giants in the space that are already, you know, driving fees down super low. A miner would have no incentive to operate, you know, on a smaller new pool that um, can't offer the same competitive rates. And it also requires a significant reserve and BTC. So what you see is pools starting to branch out into different services. Uh, here at Slushpool, one of the main projects, we're doing a couple, but the main one in the forefront right now is Brains OS Plus, which is the performance enhancing firmware for ASICs. Um, we support S9 models, uh, S17 series, T17 series, and then after that, we'll be supporting what's miners, um, the M20 and M30s. 
and so on and so on for new hardware. And then you have other pools like Poolin doing financial services. I believe they partnered up with the Three Arrows and uh, BlockFi, was it, or something like that, to okay. offer their miners some yield on uh, some of the BTC that they mine. Um, I'm not sure how diversified the financial services offering for that is yet, though. And then, of course, there's other people looking into loans, collateralized loans, or uh, near zero interest loans for short term loans yeah. uh, in order for miners to kind of um, gain some yield on uh, the BTC they have or get some more leverage for maybe financing new machines or something like that. Um, and we're going to see yeah. this. This is the trend that will continue. Uh, you know, there's some exchanges that went to mining pool, right? That happens the other way too. People that were already in the mining sector that didn't have a pool will then add a pool. However, I think with more recently, some information came out that Binance doesn't even have its own pool. I think it's like a white label of oh, really? or something huh. like that. Yeah, someone looked at the examined their uh, transactions and the vast majority, almost all of them were going to a BTC.com wallet. So that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen them trying to market that, you know, I, for example, on Telegram, I was contacted by somebody from Binance saying, hey, you know, you want to try out our pool? Um, and then also even um, via BTC, they uh, they recently tried to approach me and said, hey, you know, we'll we'll give you a good commission on on the hash rate. You know, uh, if if you convince people to um, put their miners over, over to our pool. Um, but, you know, eventually I, I just said, hey, you know, guys, I I really just prefer supporting North American uh, based pools and, and initiatives um, just because of the whole decentralization and, you know, the, the fact that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of proud of, of what we're doing over here. But, but yeah, you know, I, at this point, um, you know, I, I'm not very motivated to try to promote something like, like a Binance pool or, a, you know, a, a China-based pool. Well, especially right when uh, CZ in the past has, you know, floated the idea of a block reorg uh, just because of the hot wallet getting hacked. Um, I don't know how much hash rate you want to let one organization control that has uh, freely and publicly floated the idea of a block reorg to, you know, reattain some of the BTC that was stolen from them. Yeah. Um, so what do you have? Uh, what else do you have for us? You know, before we kind of wrap this up and, and you briefly touched on um Boss Miner, BOS Miner, and, and uh, the firmware that you guys are doing. What else is going on? Let's see here. I mean, the most recent thing would just be the firmware because we came out with support for the 17 series, both the S's and the T's. The T's are still in beta, right. but the full release will be out soon. Some pretty good performance uh, feedback on that. Some people are underclocking their S17 pluses and getting like 29 to 30 joules per terahash, which is pretty insane. Basically turns it into S19 efficiency. Yeah. And... Um, uh, of course, slush pool is free if you use it in tandem with Brains OS Plus. Um, yeah, we're just trying to roll out as much hardware support on the firmware as possible. We have another project that I can't really speak too much about that launches Q1 of 2021, and we're just plugging away. Nothing, nothing too new right now besides continuing development on other projects and the release of the firmware recently. Well, I, I bet you're itching to kind of get out there and do some traveling, and, and maybe uh, maybe you'll you'll come to North America in end of July next year. 
Yeah, we had planned to go to the the Mining Disrupt Conference uh, last year, but then of course everything got canceled because of COVID, excuse me, this year um, in July, as well as all the other major conferences. So I, I'm, I have to speak with Christian again about this, but I'm pretty sure we're going to be there. Almost certain we're going to be there. Awesome. So we have a, a user just asking any options to the white label brains OS. Yeah, actually, um, that's one thing I forgot to mention is that we have a brains partner program right now that uh, allows miners that meet specific minimum requirements or not even miners, people that operate in the mining industry um, to white label brains OS plus and brand it themselves or just get a referral if they don't want to brand it themselves or rather with their own brand. And this is sort of a revenue share model. And the the person that joins the program receives a percentage of the revenue gained uh, in exchange for helping us grow the amount of miners that use the firmware. Cool. So I would go check that out. Um, you know, I don't have the URL for the Brains Partner Program on Mind right now, but I would just go and Google or whatever or internet, .com. whatever browser you use, <laughs> just, you know, BrainsOS Plus, Brains.com, uh, Net really partner program. Netscape yeah. uh, browser. Um, yeah. <laughs> you still, if you still like Yahoo, if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> Another uh, final question. What are your views about how miners should adopt, adapt into the Snores Taproot soft fork? Is that your expertise area or should we just... I mean, I, I'm not really sure what they mean by views in this case. Uh, as I understand it, I had... Opinions? Um, uh, Bob Mc, McElrath kind of explain uh, briefly over a call with some other miners what it, exactly uh, Schnorr and Taproot was trying to accomplish. And it seems pretty uh, uncontroversial. I don't know anyone that is really against this. It seems like it's widely supported and it's going to happen. The only question is when it'll happen. I think there's two options. Um, if it, if a bunch of miners signal support for it, then it can happen a couple months sooner. If, if it's, you know, there is just, just like uproar of support immediately, then it just happens a couple months later. And there were some questions about whether it would make the Bitcoin mining network vulnerable to quantum computing. Um, I don't know how serious those concerns are though, but from what I understand, it's pretty much universally supported. So I, uh, I guess my views are, uh, I'm happy to see Bitcoin continuing to progress and be developed and add new uh, functionality because it just makes it better and stronger for the future. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Hey, so how, how can people find you um, online, Edward? Online? Um, well, I live on Telegram. So, so do I. Uh, yeah, you can find my Telegram on any of the previous websites I mentioned. But um, the other spot I'm on sometimes would be Twitter. I'm at willhash4coins is my uh, username. And the four is the number four, willhash4coins. But other than that, you can find me in pretty much any mining telegram group. Um, I, I'm pretty much everywhere on there. And I'm more than happy to open up my DMs on Twitter or in Telegram to speak to anyone about mining should they need assistance, want to get signed up, or just want to shoot the shit, basically. Awesome. Well, great, man. Uh, it was good, good talking with you today, Edward. And uh, I hope to maybe have one of you guys back uh, in Q1. Maybe maybe yeah. uh, we'll be the first to share your your new the the news of your new project. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for um, inviting me on. I really appreciate it, and it's been fun. All right. Take care. See ya.